0: great news buggy fans shoot the shit is back that's right season two with all new interviews from folks across the wide world of this sport of buggy that we all love so strap in your safety harnesses look for those shoot flags as we turn into another great round of buggy stories as we shoot the shit thank you so much for joining everyone Really excited about this week's episode. We are joined by four wonderful women who have participated in the sport across the decades. A long list of accomplishments, including many firsts. We're going to go down the list of those accomplishments, uh, talk about what it means to be a woman participating in this sport that is often male dominated at a school that's often male dominated, how the sport has changed, where they see the future of the sport going, lessons learned, uh, all kinds of other fun ridiculousness that you you've come to expect here from shoot the shit. Uh, So without further ado, let's jump into it and meet this week's guests.
1: So I'm Charlotte Heim. My nickname at Carnegie Mellon was Sherry. That was my buggy name. So uh, I graduated Carnegie Mellon in 1983 industrial design and I drove for CIA in 80 for the women's and black magic in 81. And up that's my, and then I
2: designed the buggy book in uh, 82. And I'm Melinda Ross. I I actually go by Mindy. Um, I graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1990. I um, was a Hill One pusher for the Pika women's team. I guess Tom Wood reminded me of the statistics that we won twice. <laughs> and I think I broke a record, um, but um, so lots of fun, good times. Hi,
3: I'm Janice Schneckleff. Um, I was Janice Golenbach back then. And I graduated in 2001 and then stayed for my my, uh, graduate degree in 2003 and I drove for Fringe and I was sweepstakes chair.
4: And hi, I'm Jess Thurston. I, very similarly to Janice, uh, drove for Fringe. I graduated in 2009 and then I also stayed for graduate school and was chair of sweepstakes in 2010.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. Uh, Excited to get into a lot of these stories. Uh, I guess let's start, uh, Sherry, with you. Were you the first uh, female driver of a buggy or the first to win or kind of how did that story play out and how did you get involved?
1: Um, CIA, Black Magic uh, was the buggy that I drove. And so I was the first female driver to win men's in 81. Uh, I was recruited by our buggy driver, John Brandt. I remember sitting in Scebo, uh and him approaching me and uh, he took me out on a Sunday to give me an idea of what, what it was like. I just recently reconnected with him and apparently I got out and I said that I wanted to go faster. So <laughs> <laughs> there, there was kind of a mix between men and women drivers at the time. Uh, I'm sh- I certainly wasn't the only female driver uh, and definitely not the, the, the first female driver for CIA. Um, so it was just, uh, I feel like maybe about 50-50 at that point
2: mm-hmm. in
0: 80
1: and 81.
0: And within Black Magic, was that a buggy built like specifically for you sort of with this plan of going on to the A-team and all that or was it that was, already an existing one?
1: It was an existing one. It had been in existence for... Um, several years, well into the the mid-70s. It had a couple different shells. The original primary designer was, I just was looking up a little bit of history because of um, just reconnecting last year with some of the team. Frank Robb was the, one, the primary designer of it in around 1976. And he went on to be a designer for Ford. Um, that's just a little bit of history. But it was pretty crude. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the safety features are now, but mine was, I was head first, obviously with a hockey helmet and a mouth guard. Mm-hmm. That was it.
0: <laughs> right. And that was that before the whole rule rewrite as well?
1: Um, well I did have, I actually did have seat belts too, that went over and connected in the back and, and brakes. I don't know when the rules were rewritten we did have to pass a brake test afterward
0: cool so i i guess maybe jumping back a little bit to right the win and all of that in 81 was that something you know you were kind of aware of potential for history or was it a little more just like hey we're out there we're racing we're trying to win um you know sort of what was it like culturally within buggy in that sense i
1: really yeah, so um, it didn't it didn't feel like I was really breaking ground as I was doing it because we, it was just such a nice supportive team. and you just felt like a part of, a part of the group. And, um, and it felt like a bit of a feather in your cap that you were the first that I was the mm-hmm. first email. Um, I have to say, it really didn't hit me like that point in time. Until I read the um, the article last year, I think that was written in January. That mm-hmm. no other men drivers won after my point in time. Mm-hmm. So, so it feels like a a a moment in history when looking through the rearview mirror. At the time, it was just sort of it felt kind of, just kind of a little bit nice.
0: <laughs> right, probably the top thing was getting to win. Winning uh, was race the day most important year.
1: thing. And it was a weird day too because the uh, um, the primary day the, on Spring Carnival was it was rained out, so we mm. did it the next weekend, which was um, you yeah, know it was uh, it was just a little bit different. The crowds weren't quite as as big. Um, it was a, just a singular event.
0: Right oh God, I would imagine even like probably there wasn't a full award ceremony or anything like that or no
1: yeah, we were happy. I didn't care. I had actually sprained my ankle earlier that day and I was like it blew up like a big you know like a grapefruit but it, cool. it you know it was we were happy enough that it didn't feel anything um the The problem was is that the former CIA driver who had graduated sent me a box of cookies. <laughs> Um, for the day mm-hmm. and I have to say that those cookies were consumed between the, the first the initial day we were supposed to race and <laughs> it's <was> one. <fun. laughs> I didn't don't tell my my push push team
0: you know the the results were there so Melinda I'll jump to you um quickly you know one thing I'm always interested in is like so much is made of pika's culture and like the intensity and the secrecy And, you know, those those years, late 80s, early 90s were in many ways like the height of some of that energy, I guess, kind of without, you know, divulging trade secrets. What was it like, you know, being a part of PICA then, you know, on the women's roster and like, how does that culture translate and all that?
2: I mean, I I loved every second of it. I, I mean, we were never um, provided with, I mean, it was secretive. I mean, we never had any access to any of the decisions or design or any of the technology or the building of the buggy. Um, but uh, we always felt a part of the team and never felt any less being a woman's team versus, you know, the men's organization, um, very inclusive and supported. And it was, it was just a, a lot of fun. I mean, as a pusher, you're you're just going out and pushing, you know, and training to push. You're not in the buggy. You're seeing what it's like to be in the buggy. And, um, you know, for us, it was, a and for, I think, my peer group, it was, you know, a great experience. A lot of fun. And,
0: and within that, the recruitment, I always think it's interesting, you know, how fraternities are able to build up kind of some of these really impressive women's rosters. You know, were you involved in athletics at all or sort of how did they go about kind of building out your team?
2: Um, Well, I was a a member of uh, Kappa Alpha Theta sorority. And back Mm. then it was the and I don't know about other fraternities, but it was they partnered with my sorority. So the pushers on my team came from Kappa Alpha Theta. It wasn't as if they were recruited from across the university. It was within that one house, and oh, you know, okay, cool. it was pretty small. You know, back then we lived. I went back for the first time to Carnegie Mellon. Well, I've been back twice since I graduated. We lived in Pennsylvania for several years after um, after I got married. But at the time, the sororities were up. You know, Margaret Morrison. I think they've all moved. You know, mm-hmm. down to where the fraternities used to be. So. I mean, I think we maybe had, I can't remember, 50 women at most in, within our group, and that's where, that was the pool of talent from which they drew to develop their women's team. So, that was a connection.
0: And from those 50, you got two uh... <laughs> and i might not i might not have that number right
2: but it may have been more but it was from that sorority yeah there were no outsiders
0: gotcha okay interesting because i know now i feel like it's like the whole soccer team or something makes up like their their push squad so
2: nope, Um, not anymore and i know they're historically i mean the one time we went back was when they were not pika they were fish or whatever they were (laughs) (laughs) right uh. but um So, um, you know, I'm aware a little bit of the history, but um, nope, it was all from that one sorority. And that's how it was done back then.
0: All right, Janice, let's jump maybe a little bit to your background, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess maybe talk a little bit about your experience, fringe, jumping to sweepstakes um, and kind of that pipeline, that connection and what that was like for you.
3: Sure. Um, So when I showed up at Carnegie Mellon, I never heard of Buggy and I was recruited like if my first day i think my parents were still there when i was recruited it's like they were all out looking for like the the short girls to drive and you know fringe was a lot different back then we i was lucky to be there at a, a real turning point for the organization when we went from a very small team to you know this like powerhouse now uh, so my first year that i joined there was we only pushed one women's team and i think, two or three months. I actually have the, have the, I think we had three men's teams that first year. And by the time I graduated, they were, they were winning. So it was, it was amazing. But I did graduate. And I decided that um, um, now that it was no longer an undergrad, but I was still associated with the school that I wanted to move away from driving and try being a, a member of sweepstakes. And I don't know, Jess, if you had the same same experience, we can talk about yours soon, but it seemed like nobody wanted to be sweepstakes chair. It almost fell upon me because I was <laughs> the only one willing to do it at the time. Um, but I'm really glad I did. I learned so much and it was it was really fun. And I actually, I was able to do it for two years in a row because again, nobody wanted to do it that second year either. And so it was such a good experience for me.
0: I, I think one thing, Kyrus, before we fully jump into to your story, Jess, right. Three of y'all are are drivers on here. And I know, you know, Janice here sounds very much like kind of the contemporary story I've heard from drivers where it's like, you know, people walking around or even have like another driver pacing, walking next to like the freshman to be like, will she fit? Um, I don't know, you know, Sherry, if it was as much like that in your time, but kind of interested to compare and contrast even just like the recruitment Processes for driving, which I feel like have gotten really very (laughs) intense, you know, over the Mm -hmm. past 20 years or so. Uh,
1: Well, like Melinda, there's actually a bit of a sorority connection for my recruitment when I I think about it. Um, And and that was so uh, Kappa Kappa Gamma, and my buggy driver, my buggy chairman, um, John Brandt, was a key man for. which is the like the key is the symbol. Um, anyway, for Kappa Kappa Gamma, it was actually a very strong, buggy sorority. Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of early pushers. I was just uh, kind of doing some history on that too. Our, our sorority, after last year when a reunion didn't happen, we've been meeting online and collected all the all the uh, buggy related accomplishments and we had three like between 79 84 we had three sweepstakes chairs one design chair three different push teams and two designs designers for the buggy book in in addition to myself as a driver so so there was a you know there was a connection there again kind of realized through the rear view mirror Mm -hmm. (laughs) just recently so that's kind of cool. But um, I think John found out that I inherited some of my brother's toys in in my teenage years that I was, I had, um, I drove a go-kart and I had a little mini bike as a, a teen, which is also sort of unusual. Um, and he thought, hmm, you know, go-kart, like maybe I'd have the, the, um, the fortitude or the courage to drive. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't remember any yardsticks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess then Jess, let's go ahead and segue into uh, your uh, sort of entry into the buggy world involvement with sweepstakes. And also, I think you were the first Woman, ever broadcast? I think I was with me in twenty eleven. Yeah,
4: we did it a few years together, which was really fun. Right, you know what you're doing in this, and I just shouted opinions into the microphone. um But no, my my recruitment experience was very similar to Janice's, and I had been, you know, it's like a really short nerdy kid, like driving up from Virginia, and in the car, my mom's giving me this whole spiel about like older boys. Mm-hmm. at this college are going to come after you know was like you don't know what you're talking about and then we pull up to morwood and step out and all the guys were just leering as they did when it was still the fraternity quad mm-hmm. in 2005 and just ran over to me and to any other short girl and carried all my stuff into my room and my mother's looking at me like what did i just say on the pennsylvania turnpike um so that's how I got recruited. I think I was recruited by Fringe in a less creepy way um, by my second day of orientation or so. And it's just a matter of being small. But, you know, I loved every second of it. I think I really lived in the Fringe room, um, and which was our buggy garage. And, you know, did four years designing, building, and driving. And it was a lot by the end of four years. So when I knew I was going to stick around and go to Heinz, I kind of just wanted to step back and say more of the, this is not a fun way to say this, but like the administrative side of things and and kind of be a little less emotionally entangled in a singular team. It's pretty draining after a long time. So I ran a competitive race to um, to be chair and like loved the whole team that I worked with. I mean, I, I to this day, I think I learned like a lot of what I use on the job from being in sweepstakes. I don't think it was very glamorous. I think that like, I'm curious, frankly, what a lot of men's experience was. I had a tough experience. I think people were, I don't really shy away from telling people what to do if they're in the wrong. And I I felt like I met a lot of resistance a lot of the time just from being a woman who was in charge of things. I hope that that has changed, but I still, I credit so much to that whole experience and really loved both being in sweepstakes and being infringed. Yeah. And then being a commentator, uh, I had so much fun with
0: that. Yeah. It's an interesting thing you bring up with the the sweepstakes chair. I'd be interested to hear Janice, what, what your experience was there, but I was recording another one of these with the, the two guys who were the, uh, videographers in the lead truck and the follow truck forever before CMU TV was there. Uh, and we were just getting into, or or sort of what it was like during the reviews or the challenges and how sweepstakes was treated. Um, It didn't get as much into gender, but like this kind of interesting thing of how, and I think especially in the nineties, maybe a bit of the two thousands, it was very adversarial between sweepstakes and some of the organizations. And like that was the one thing that all the organizations would get together on was sort of butting heads with sweepstakes you know, one of the chairs they were mentioning, who was like, especially despised, like, was a woman. And I think there probably is something to that when, you know, you have this intense buggy culture and like some itinerant chairs and what that is. But I don't know, Janice, if that's something you experienced at all or, or not.
3: And the first time I met them was my first year of sweepstakes. And I was like, who are these guys who always show up to, to record? And so, um, yeah, they're great. I'm still Friendly with them. And um, I have to admit, I don't have strong memories of um, anyone being adversarial. I mean, I think we definitely had some incidents that um, I was talking to Roshan, who is the uh,
0: advisor, uh, what's the,
3: advisor, thank you um, for both of my years. And she definitely has some very distinct memories of some conflicts. But I don't I don't know if I blocked it out because they, they so painful, but um, my experience when I look back, um, I just remember the the good parts. I mean, I, of course, you know it's cold and early, and I do remember some like silly things, like I called buggy off too early because of weather, and then it, there wasn't bad weather, and people would it's, would get annoyed, or vice versa. I was like, we can we can do it, and then we were all freezing, and everyone hated me either way. Uh, no, I, I'm sorry. I don't remember
0: any. any no, one, that but... I mean that's a a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's you know, and, and I, I do think it's also doing enough of these. Overall, what sticks with people within Buggy is the good and the fun and the connections and the friendships and even like, you know, yeah. with I... age, I think everybody kind of realizes okay, Buggy's more of a uniter than a. Yeah,
3: I, I do remember um, my good friend, Sam Swift, the uh, fringe <laughs> failed um, drops. And he he came out after the race day was over, he came out and measured the drop lines and proved that they were the wrong distance apart, according to the rules. And so basically, like, had, you know, he, we, he, he undecued themselves. And we realized that we had been mismeasuring for the basically for the
0: whole year, but definitely for race day. <laughs> I, that's what, I mean, I feel like that's almost more the case where it's like everybody within the culture. And I don't know if, if the rest of you have different stories with this. It's just like, so intense about it. They want to find any little way to get ahead or have an advantage. And there's so many different flavors of that story where it's like, well, actually, we figured out we could do X, Y, or Z to get, you know, this little bit ahead or a little bit forward. And, and if anything, it's just like a testament to like, how much people care about buggy.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a lot of time and effort put into it, you know, and it's a lot of late nights and early mornings and a lot of sacrifice. And I think that's a normal you know, that level of intensity is normal of most college kids, right? No matter what they're doing, it's a competitive environment. And so it, I think it was a great outlet. I mean, um, you know, it's a tough curriculum, any major you're majoring in there at Carnegie Mellon, and it's a nice, um, it's another level of intensity, but, um, with a different, more personal feel to it. So, I mean, I remember the intensity. I don't remember negativity. I'm sure there was some, but, you know, I think people are gonna look for those little inches because, you know, you see races being called based on hundreds of a second or something like that, you know, so, you know, those little things matter. Not that I ever was aware of it or complaining about it, but I can understand where some of those, challenges and actions come from because it, you know, winning and losing can come down to, you know, that little inch.
3: Yeah. You're really right. Melinda, that we spend all year preparing for this day that comes down to a two or three minute race. And so, yeah, you want to do everything you can to keep your lead. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Yeah. I
4: I think um, we talked a lot about in fringe, I'm sure in other teams too, like any slop in the system and I, that's my entire approach to work now is, you know, we would, we would not use tape to hold a fairing on, you know, we would find a better, more creative solution because we'd say, oh, but there could be an effect on the aerodynamics Mm -hmm. or that tape is heavy, like Mm -hmm. things that would sound totally nonsensical outside of this world where Mm -hmm. fractions of an ounce. do add up to a difference. And I, I, I really take that approach in into everything. I mean, we would think about like, how can we reduce any moment of slop? Like, what does that even mean? What does that look like? And it's just, it's, it's waste. It's a loss of energy. And that translates to so many other things, but we were so intense about these really small examples of it. And I do think it added up. It also probably made all of us lose just all sleep apparently other people slept during college and <laughs> didn't get up at four in the morning and like a little I would take the Volvo and pick up all of our drivers try to seem peppy on an hour of sleep and that to me was totally worth it but I am I envious looking back at people that relaxed on the weekends in college. You know what actually no I'm no, not either
2: no, no. I,
1: I still I um in terms of intensity Uh, I still think about the line that I was driving and um, you know, can I cut that just a little bit closer? Can I go a little bit wider into the shoot? Mm -hmm. Um, But I was 19. I was pretty young going to college. And when I won in 1981, when the team won in 1981, and then I retired and um, it was, not popular. I'm not sure Tom Wood has ever forgiven me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I probably said some 19 year old thing uh, in in terms of like, well, I've done that. Um, But the background was I was lucky enough to be, to have parents that supported me in college and they were like, now you've done that, Mm -hmm. you're done. (laughs) (laughs) We're happy you're still all in one piece. So anyway, but the intensity I still almost still flashback to the to the line.
0: Did you end up cutting off like all involvement with the sport or did you stay around in any other capacity with the team or
1: I um stayed around to design the um I did, did the bu- oh, so right, I right, right, design the buggy major design. so I did the the buggy buck the next year. Yeah. So that was sort of my, you know, tapering
4: off from buggy.
0: I feel like it's a hard community to to taper from. Um, it was
4: yeah. Yeah. What a boundary. You could, I feel like you could teach a seminar in boundary setting mm-hmm. for like people in buggy in general, or just CMU students, maybe more broadly. It's incredible.
1: Well, I took, I took some criticism for it. That's for sure.
2: Well, way to, way to hold the line then. That's good.
3: Yeah. But I absolutely understand your parents, uh, supporting you, but also being like, okay, you survive with get out now. Mm-hmm. I, I look back. I mean, at the time, I thought, well, there's rules and everyone's following these safety rules, and how how dangerous can it be? And then, first of all, I had a pretty serious accident a couple years into it and hurt my back. I mean, I'm totally fine now, but at the time, it was very scary. And now I look back and I have young girls, and I'm like, what if would I ever want them in a buggy? It's like, you know, these twenty-year-old kids designing these rules and I I, at the time it felt so sick and now as an adult I'm like oh my god what were we thinking
2: (laughs) but I I think that's true of anything with when you have kids right like I look back at you know whether it was whatever it is I think oh my god like what was I thinking and you know is it I I have a son a daughter who just graduated from college and a son who's a freshman in college and it's just it's such a different experience today I think for kids versus opinion and I'm not saying it's right or wrong or a good or bad, but um, our, I don't think the experience I have will ever be replicated and and not just with buggy, but just in how it was to be a college student. It's just a different world today. And um, I'm like many things that are dangerous when you're younger, you know, we made it through and, and, you know, and that's a good thing. So I have no regrets, but, um, but it's, it's interesting to see the evolution and, and, and buggy, especially, I'm not aware of all the new rules or, you know, how they've, made it more safe, but I would imagine they've changed things a lot.
1: I was on the, um, podcast last during on, on, uh, what would have been race day last year and invited my 20 something sons to join. And I don't think they really realized what it was like. They are like, Oh yeah, she was a buggy driver, whatever that was. And they sorely t- like I've paid, I've been paid back. Like, um, my parents, Uh, worry um oh yeah because my my son was a one was a wrangler in wyoming which is kind of dangerous and the other one was a a a, a led bicycle rides across the country and in montana so um i feel like i've i've lived the experience that my parents lived (laughs) lived with them
0: yeah I, i do think it's interesting too thinking of changes within the culture and safety So, you know, there's sort of the safety mind of it. I think the other thing, too, is slightly changing the topic, but collaboration within it, where I think teams, right, secretiveness has always been a part of it. But, you know, even last year, one of my favorite episodes of this that I did was with all the senior buggy chairs from that year. And, like, it was surprising that, like, they were all felt like such tight good friends or whatever in a way that like obviously it's not like everyone from every team hated each other back in the day but just like you know it seemed like there was a lot of kind of more okay we are the buggy community so we're going to be tight and we're going to be you know more forthcoming and stuff like that something like the team apex you know getting a lot of help starting off the ground that maybe wasn't there feel free to correct me Like even now, Connor, who is from uh, Apex and um, last year's uh, buggy chair, Dia, are actually working on like an open source build book. And and it seems to me like that, you know, is probably a pretty big departure from anything any of you all experience out of your reaction to just some of that cultural shift in that way as well. Mm -hmm
4: i mean i think it's awesome uh especially being removed from it i'm like yes that is what we should be doing but if you said that to me when i was a senior in fringe i would have been like you're crazy don't ask me any questions we were we took our level of secrecy so seriously i mean it was (laughs) anti-fun <laughs> in mm-hmm. some ways and I describe to people now like yeah uh uh-huh. so you went under the parking garage but I'm so sorry to get down there you needed one set of keys then you needed a different set of keys and then can you crawl like you know it just it was totally different than that and even just I know we've given some KDR buggies and they've like rotated throughout some teams to repaint and use to get off the ground that wouldn't have happened 15 years ago even I think it's incredible. it's it, because there's a real threat, I think, as there's less and less Greek life. I just think we need to do more and more to get more folks involved. And if there's a, you know, lower barrier to entry, that makes a ton of sense.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I just remember too, and I don't know, if back when, you know, I was spending those days or whatever weekends at PICA, you know, in the late night going out to practice or whatever, but you know, even within the fraternity, there was that buggy group, and they're the only ones that knew what was happening. It wasn't like the whole fraternity knew, and, and they were, they would call them foads. I don't, have you heard that term?
0: No. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's shaking their
2: heads. Yes or no? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. yes. So, I mean, we still joke about it. My husband's, Went to Carnegie Mellon, he was a Pike. And so we still refer to the foes because, you know, even within that own, their own culture, it was like they weren't going to share with their brothers who weren't involved in the building of the buggy what was going on. So,
3: well, Will, Will you did a whole um, podcast about the history of BAA, and that started because of Pika secrecy, too. And, and Sam trying to get back at this.
0: <laughs> right. This weird revenge joke that somehow, you know, <laughs> ushered in. This whatever greater collaboration or something Where everyone's like you know it is kind of cool to see Pictures of all of our buggies Where right the initial reaction Is like how dare Sam Swift Post all these pictures of our buggies So you know I, I think it's a nice thing but it's definitely There are less teams On a race day But even within that Too I feel like it's consolidated where like Fringe, SDC Pike they may all have ABCD Teams and, you know, others only can field an A and a B.
4: Well, and it's the, mm-hmm. something you just made me think of with that is that I, I remember when I was chair, I think we had 14 teams and a, and a lot of C and D teams that I, I was like really, really proud and happy to say that. And I almost wonder, it's not that we can compromise on safety for newer teams, but I do think in addition to safety rules, there's other rules that everyone listening to this podcast knows you know you've got like three points on the ground at all times or that that kind of thing that become very small but then can fully DQ you and that like that can really slow down a team's momentum if all of a sudden they're new and then they they somehow roll two teams or whatever it is and then they're DQ'd like that's so demoralizing <laughs> um and uh, you know it's something that I wonder if we'll have to think about or really the kids will have to think about over time to Increase participation. That are the standards maybe different for certain levels of teams, but or is that itself unfair? I don't know. I don't know what the right way is to get yeah. make it more sustainable for more younger teams.
0: Yeah, it was an interesting thing we we discussed. So I did have uh, Dia and Connor on to talk about that that build book and some of the process, but also the philosophy around it. You don't know what you don't know, right? And it's sort of like, is there an easier way or a better way? Or in, in your case, right, a more forgiving way to communicate 200 pages of rules or whatever, because Ethan Gladding was also on that who was involved with Pioneers. And I think part of like the collapse with them was they had something like that where like a race day didn't occur and yeah. then you put in all this work and then you don't have a race day. It's really hard to have the motivation to want to stay around with um, what's what's going on there.
3: But then you get into the situation, I I do agree with you, Jessica, Um, or Jess, (laughs) and then on the flip side, you're, you know, we were just talking about how these, you know, these races come down to such a short time and everyone wants to uh, make sure that they get the best advantage. So you're going to have more savvy teams try to take these little um, more flexible, flexible roles and really take advantage of them too. So it's, it's a hard balance.
4: It is. And I also, the, the bigger part of me is like I, I just want to win. Like I, you know, I I like that it encourages such some such competition. I think having distance from being an undergrad now, it has made me think like you were super intense. Was that mm-hmm. ultimately productive? And I don't I don't know the answer to that. But yeah, no, you're totally right.
2: But I mean, but that's that's like organic, right? I mean, yeah. that's it is what it is. So you can't manufacture that I think you know for a team or for anybody who's involved I mean part of it is just what it is I guess in some ways.
1: Well we all probably have tried to describe what buggy is to somebody that's not at CMU like well you know it's like soapbox derby uh, bar out the back you're like a relay race Um, and so like when you're thinking about like lowering the bar to entry you know make the entry easier everyone's coming up to speed. It's not like they did buggy in like JV team in high school. (laughs) I think that adds to the intensity because you're like, maybe you saw buggy races when you're visiting as a prospective. just trying to decide whether you're gonna attend Carnegie Mellon. But the rest of the population is like starting from zero uh, as they begin as a freshman. So it's kind of a, a big steep curve.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting challenge, right? Is very few people come in with a buggy background of any significance. It's such a a crash course, you know, there's not really too many roles you can give two or three hours a week to, and really see any much of a, like maybe, you know, you get pledges moving hay bales or whatever, but like short of that to really have an impact, at least my understanding is. You kind of gotta go all in.
3: Yeah, it's true. I mean, and especially in the independent organizations, I don't know if it's the same um, in the Greek organizations, but you know, some people don't even join till their sophomore or junior year. My my now husband, who I met in Fringe, um, he didn't join till his sophomore year, just after watching a race day, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that that looks awesome. I want to do that." So people have well, many people have even less than four years to ramp up and figure it out.
2: And of course, some organizations have an advantage because they've got a long history and out, you know, maybe out some outside alumni support or you know what I mean in terms of coaching. And so I mean, there there's experience there that is just cumulative and you know, just part of being involved for a long period of time.
0: Right. We're maybe gonna have like a half race day this year, like roles just started this weekend. But by and large, you're gonna have Next year, students who haven't had a race day in two years. Mm-hmm. So, like, two whole classes that haven't had race days, and like your juniors and seniors, you know, a distant memory when they were probably beginners on the team. Will that have a leveling effect? Will that mean, will that only, you know, increase the distance between like some of these teams who do have like the alumni and that knowledge base and like?
3: Yeah, that's a really good point. I do hope that um, they most of the teams still have alumni who are involved and can help, even with sweepstakes. I remember that um, when I became sweepstakes chair, I had this like chip on my shoulder that I could do it all and I didn't need help. Um, but looking back, was like I should have taken the help and the advice. And so I do hope that um, even for sweepstakes, running the whole weekend and and make and enroll you know rolls every weekend that they do get that advice from someone who's been there fairly recently.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
4: I agree. And I I worry that it will create more of a divide between teams that actually have a lot of money and teams that don't. I don't know if this is still the case, but that was always SDC had a ton of money and some fraternities had a lot of money um, where their alumni were super supportive. And in Fringe, we had to get so much stuff donated for free. We had to build things. I mean, we had a A Jigsaw that we had to stick our hand into to like crank it really fast and then fly backwards and I would work on the mill standing on like two or three orange crates that we stole like this was not safe at all but but wonderful. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we intentionally built a new buggy every year so that uh, folks could learn to do it and so that was really an essential thing because we did have to build every single component of the buggy. And I think that's the right way to do it. But for teams that can outsource some things, they'll probably, there will be a divide. Um, But yeah, I think there will be otherwise a leveling effect. But I, I worry that that will be sort of something that creates a disparity in team success. And maybe there's something the school can do to be more supportive of organizations in that way. Maybe alumni like, we should donate more to our teams. I don't know. Now I'm just thinking out loud in ways that'll get me in mm-hmm. trouble. But yeah, it's interesting to think about. I I'm it's I'm sad for them. I mean, race day was easily the best part of you know the the best four, I guess, collective weekends of my entire college experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It might make the experience really intense when you imagine, like, hey, I'm finally able to have a college experience and, like, let's do everything. Don't mess it up. Yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah. The weather is going to be
3: extra important this year, too.
0: Yeah. So it's going to be, I mean, obviously everything has been, you know, totally upended. And especially now that we're kind of stalled Buggy 100 for the second consecutive year. Um, we we'll have uh, to
4: go extra big in 2022 then. We're all coming back, do one whole line of all the drivers of all time and height, mm-hmm. height order. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I don't know what I'm brainstorming and am now making myself have to execute against next year, but
0: right.
4: gotta get, it's got to be like the biggest race day ever in
3: 2022. Yeah. I was like looking back through the history of, of like in the Bucky books that you helped design, Sherry, and um. You know, they were there. I would always see the Warriors where they didn't have race day for a couple of years. And, like, I'm wondering if there's anything we can learn from it was so long ago. I, I bet there's no one who could really advise anymore. But to, you know, they had to start basically from scratch again. So it's not unprecedented.
0: Right. Even Tom Wood wasn't wasn't around
4: no, he's not. <laughs> I'm gonna do like a master class and just be like everyone sit down and listen to how this is gonna work okay
0: <laughs> right that is also actually funnily another thing that seems to be a theme throughout this is like the tension of like alumni and students and like having such an active student body and such an active alumni within this sport and like uh, when advice is taken, when advice is rejected or too much and like how that flips, which is.
3: Yeah. Uh, and back to the topic of this particular podcast, Women in Buggy, I don't know about you, but at least back when I was an early alum or still a student, I noticed that most of the alumni who came back at least in fringe were the mechanics, which at the time were mostly men. Uh, and it, we didn't have like as some drivers definitely come back, but it didn't seem like as many would be as into it from years to come. Like, it felt like the intensity that they wanted to come back and see what came from the mechanics. I don't know if you all
1: had the same experience. I I agree. It it was the mechanic alums um, that came back for uh, Hmm. CIA. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yep. That's interesting. I had no idea that was a designation or not a designation, but just like a a trend within the intensity of the but, uh, kind of alumni relationship.
3: I, mean, I think I was probably one, an exception to, I mean, I was a driver who was very involved and Jess too. I mean, she was also a mechanic and my husband was a mechanic. So we came back together. I think that helps. But yeah, I think a lot of the people I see come back even now are, are mostly,
2: mm-hmm.
3: mostly men. I don't, I to make that, that generalization because I do have a lot of female friends who come back, but.
1: When I was driving um, the uh, it was the alum that, there were two alums, Lou and Frank, that were my flaggers. You know, they were coming to see the, the buggy that they had designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, Jess, it's a good idea that that Fringe was doing new designs every year um, because I was driving something that was several years old. We just happened to put together a team that, that all the right combination occurred in our year. But I think they were sort of running on fumes in terms of the buggy design.
0: Yeah, I wonder even BAA makeup. I'm just trying to think now like, is it mostly former mechanic types or who all's on there? I'm just trying to do some inventory now. It seems um, like almost actually it kind of is.
3: Yeah, I would agree. I mean I was very briefly involved in the BAA before I had um my kids. Yeah, up until that point, I think it was, I mean I know that um it started with mostly mostly ma- fringe and CIA mechanics and then I think there have been more women involved in recent years though
0: for sure but I I'm thinking even just within roles of people who have been involved in in BAA gender agnostic because I think our board right now is pretty mixed but I think it's mostly mechanic background too mm-hmm. even which is which is interesting
3: yeah I wonder if that's because generally speaking the mechanics would be the ones who would you know, after classes in the evenings, afternoons and evenings would be the ones in the garages working on the buggies, whereas the drivers and the pushers, for the most part, would come just on the weekends. And mm-hmm. um, There's push practice, and I'm sure people did their own, but, like, drivers didn't really have much they could practice outside mm-hmm. of those roll weekends. Um, and so unless you mm-hmm. wanted to help build the buggy and be involved, like, I know, Jessica, you were in the front, Jess, you were in the front room a lot, I was too, um, helping out building, but... I wasn't driving during the week, certainly.
4: Yeah, I think my connection came from being the mechanic. Like obviously being a driver was a big part of, you know, I don't know, my social life too, but yeah, I mean, I lived in the fringe room and did like anything I couldn't do in the studio, I was doing as homework in the fringe room and then working on things and sleeping in shifts on the most disgusting couch humanly imaginable. Yeah, I think that builds, it becomes more of a Mm day-to-day, being a mechanic makes buggy a day-to-day component of your academic experience, I guess. And maybe that's what draws folks back.
2: Lots of time, lots of effort. It's almost like a a project, you know, Versus and with, like you said, a tangible outcome.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's almost like an additional class that takes Mm -hmm. up more time than any other class and you don't get any credit for it in the end. (laughs) But I have heard from many people that they learn more from buggy Oh yeah. to take on. I mean, even Jesse mentions a couple of times that you use in life now that, that more than you learned in your classes. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
2: It's like a STEM project in today's terms. You know, it, you know mm-hmm. it's really what it is.
0: No, that's, I'm just chewing on that mechanic thing. That's very interesting. Because I guess, you know, to something we didn't touch on is just like CMU historically is obviously even just gender balance very much male heavy and then even there like i think when you look within the schools it's like cfa is a bit more even or or maybe a bit more women but then like cit mcs all of that it's flipped like i think i remember when i was a freshman we had like the best gender diversity diversity ratio ever and it was like 55 45 male to female and everybody cheered It, it seems though kind of within at least all the stories being told here like once you're actually doing it, like the teams were very much democratic, accepting, like there wasn't really any, I don't know, I I don't want to like overly simplify it, but like, it seemed like generally is kind of like, once you're like, okay, let's do buggy, everybody was so dedicated and intense. It's like, okay, let's make this thing work. So, you know, I feel like there's not really any narrative to push to the otherwise, but I don't know, does that sound kind of like an accurate recap of sort of the experience there? Yeah. And
3: um, at least back when I was driving and then chair, you know, there were a lot of fraternities obviously involved. We didn't have any sororities involved back then. I mean, obviously members of sororities would be drivers or um, push or sometimes even be mechanics for the independent organizations. But um, and I know, Melinda and Sherry, you were both in sororities. So and just do you happen? Did you have any sororities when you were chair involved? Like, And is it becoming more
4: yeah. equal yet? There were a few that were teaming up with some smaller fraternities. And so they were kind of introductory teams. I'm forgetting. Yeah, I
0: was. feel like it was something like Tridel, DTD were working yes. together. Oh yeah,
4: and that was a pretty, I think that was a successful partnership. And then Z something, with, well, yeah, there was not a lot of sorority engagement, but that was just before a bunch of the fraternities got pushed off campus, uh, or, or cause themselves to be pushed off campus. I don't mean to take a stance in either direction. Um, but I, I felt like there was still, I'm glad that there's more sorority involvement. I mean, my perception is that there's more now, and I'm glad that that was growing when I was chair, but I, yeah, I, I, I'm always sort of curious why it has ebbed and flowed in that way. And again, not being in Greek life, I couldn't really speak to it. But I do think that teams that were led by women mechanics operated a little differently. I mean, it's not like I have a huge number of data points to go off of. But there was certainly, I think, some tension. I don't know that it was along gender lines uh, on different teams. It was probably much more dependent upon just personality types and the intensi- inherent intensity level of all of this. But I do think that, yeah, the the women dominated teams just ran differently, but not in any way that I can necessarily point out patterns, but certainly seemed to operate in a way in, the, in which they needed to take up some space since they hadn't been able to for a while.
3: And those teams were also, you know, young, younger teams in general. Yeah, exactly. And so they probably had more to prove and more to learn.
4: Elbowing.
0: Well, I imagine too, right? It's probably going to be pretty much all independence. And you mentioned some of the younger thing. I think also, like, a lot of fraternities just have an inherently built in hierarchy. Militant's a strong word, but just in the sense of, like, right, there is rank, there is order, there is history, there's sort of that alumni thing. And I think, you know, that does give. I don't want to say an advantage necessarily to the independents, but like they're able to determine a little bit more like a structure and like go around some like historical rigidity that probably exists there.
1: I have so much admiration for crossing over between being a driver and being on the design team. I'm just thinking back. So my first career was industrial design. I'd like leave the shop where I was using Bondo and, and the table saw and the bandsaw and and, um, forming plastic, and then I'd go be a a driver. But there was never any thought of crossover that I remember, and there were no women designers. I mean, it was still that point where like we might, we're sort of thinking about female drivers with the uh, fraternities, but we're not quite sure. And so that was it was that uh, transition point, but um, no women in the design teams that I recall, although um, there was an early team, a SWE. Does anybody here remember that? It was really early, like the late 70s. And I feel like uh, the W and the E was Women in Engineering. Society of
0: Women Engineering. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So maybe they were designing their own. Yeah, I do remember now that you say that. Yeah, and I
2: remember only women drivers and only male mechanics. You know, and yeah. but I never felt again, like you said, I didn't really feel like it was a gender drawn across gender lines. It's just kind of how it was, you know. And um, but I do remember. Sweet, I don't remember. That was must have been real new back then. Yeah,
3: I'm picturing where CIA would be today, Sherry, if you had uh, gotten a mechanic back then with your design expertise.
1: That would have well, changed the game. I remember every detail of the, the buggy, you know, cause I mean, you're obviously like, like you're closed in with it, but uh, it, you know, it was just a fascinating design. Do they still use heat?
0: They're not really meant to like, I think you can't have heating elements in a truck, but you can like heat wheels or treat wheels, I think outside of the truck. So it's like part of the whole fire safety thing so it's not big and that was kind of what prompted the big rule change there in the late 80s is there was a fire in a truck Mm -hmm. um luckily everyone was all right you know that's what SDC got in trouble with in 2010 yeah I think (laughs) just right because that right they got dequalified on uh, a race day because they found a propane thing within a certain proximity of the truck and yeah, I cried
4: uh, hiding in a bush that day with uh, Gina because all of the SDC parents were yelling at me. Um, right, because
0: you were chair that year, right? I was
4: chair. I did a lot of aggressive crying behind buildings because I just <laughs> getting <laughs> screamed at. Um, yes, because they had propane and it was an automatic. The fire marshal, fire marshal Bob, who we oh, all run, found it and we couldn't ignore it. Um, and they were, they would have won. I mean, say for others, some, some sort of other DQ and yeah, we had to DQ all, I guess it was seven or eight teams. I forget how many women's teams. Yeah.
0: That was a wild race thing. I do not, uh, envy what you had to go through with that. That's crazy. The parents were in on it too.
4: Screaming at me. I mean, it was a lone point. And I, I remember stepping back and talking to Gina and the other administrators that were there and we were all sort of, huddling and try, trying to figure out what to do. And it was kind of one of those moments where you're like, this is a little too much. This is, we know we're all intense kids. And a, a lot of folks were very lucky to have very involved parents who encourage them to be successful academically and get to Carnegie Mellon. But that was a step too far. Yeah, we had to like, I, I remember someone else on sweepstakes having to move my car somewhere off campus because they were like, surrounding
2: my car. It was... Mm. Sure but yeah. I have no recollection of parent involvement back in the late eighties, <laughs> other, other than telling me to stop. Yeah. Um, I think mine dropped me off for college and picked me up and went to my graduation. I mean, it's just so different. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it
4: is. Yeah, mostly, mostly it's a good thing. But that's what stands out in my mind most about that. But yes, this is a very long way of saying there are there's still heat used in different ways. <laughs> different teams have applied it in different have different theories about what heat does to either the wheels or the, the shell of the buggy or the... My,
1: my heat safety, so they would, um, speaking of like secrecy, I feel like, hmm, should I talk about the design? <laughs> um, that's how, how secret it was then, but uh, it was a solid milled wheels with I think a quarter inch of um, foam and the adhesive was a big deal because I it know. would fail. And that was like the, the magic el- elixir of the design. And they would, I don't even know what they were doing. Because I was like strapped in. Um, and they would heat the wheels. And my we duct taped my legs. That was my heat. My heat. Oh my um, God. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, what, why did we think that
4: would do anything? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you were 19 yeah. <laughs> yeah right i was 19 and like it's enough it's enough, it's
2: enough. Right.
1: give me the hockey helmet and let's go <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah so i would have like tape up and tape residue on my legs um from the duct tape, duct tape. which was supposed to be safety tough to hear
0: <laughs> wow Oh.
4: that is so funny
0: yeah so like you know whoever asked about evolution right like no more duct tape on, you know, exactly. uh, so, so that's a good thing, um, no, uh,
2: you know, even with that, I mean, you think back to, like, when we were younger, the, you know, no technology, I mean, whatever, I had the original Mac at Carnegie Mellon, you know, the one that was like a, like a tower with a little, you had know, to boot it up, and I mean, so, you know, beyond just, it just, I can't even fathom what it would be like today, doing, you know, the design and the development, because we didn't I mean, we didn't have any of the technological support that kids have today.
0: Right, there was no CAD.
1: I worked on AutoCAD number one. They had this like rack of buttons on the side. Or,
2: yeah, even like the internet, you know what I mean? To Google right. search. Yeah. Or, I mean, there was that wasn't that, you know? And maybe that's why the alumni involvement was even more important back then because you didn't have this cyber world of, you know, information you could go out to to support yourself, you know, just working together and, you know, getting advice and through experience and, you know, in real time, not so much in, you know, Googling and.
4: Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how What they even use today, I don't know. We would use illicit copies of SolidWorks, which I'm not an engineer. I don't know if that's still even the program, but program, I mean, please, even that. But we would all live in the same house for a week and run simulations that would take, you know, 48 hours to, you know, just from modeling one piece of the buggy. I have no idea if that's how it works now. And we would hand draw every lay up every piece of the puzzle we would hand draw it out and leave it and i would like color code these binders and mm-hmm. maybe now they're like what is a binder like what are mm-hmm. people doing i don't know i don't know i mean we were just starting to get
3: cell phones back when i was, right. was yeah, we in, and, and, um, and jess you're probably the one of the first chairs who people were having smartphones <laughs> like, yeah.
2: I mean, True. even even calling practice or whatever, free rolls or whatever. I mean, I, you'd have to go out to, like, the Hill to find out if you were having it or not. You yeah, know, it wasn't yeah. like there was any sort of post
0: that oh, said, right.
3: When I was driving, I was the head driver for one or two years. And so it would be my responsibility to call the other drivers and wake them up. And you'd, like, hope you didn't wake up their roommates because you were calling right. a <laughs> dorm room. Oh, my gosh. Right. You... Oh, wow. Yeah. No.
0: It was just, like, landlines. They ever. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, like literally the dorm phone that came in in all of our rooms when we, I don't even know if they still do that, but
0: yeah. I don't think so. They didn't do it when I was there. Wow. I mean, it's one of those things that's like not that ridiculous when I think about it, but it's just everything moves so quickly. You never reflect on how different that all would have been.
4: Do they not use the walkie talkies now? Because we had the whole set and like 50% of them were not working at any given time. So I'd be like shouting into the walkie talkie. I I think they still
0: do. um, Yeah, like radio club you're talking about.
4: No, no, like we we, uh, sweepstakes and we were calling. Mm -hmm. Yes, doing rolls.
3: You know, I had completely forgotten, but yes, we had like a crate of walkie talkies that we distribute in the morning, and everyone had to return them. Yes,
4: but they didn't work at the time, so I'd just be like shouting down the hill, like Fringe, you are fully on deck right now. I mean, well, they were probably still left over from when I was chair, so they didn't work so well. <laughs> it
0: is it is wild to see like, I guess kind of what I'm saying with that is like some of the records and stuff like that, it's amazing they stood for as long as they did with like all of these changes. And obviously now like SDC shattered a couple of them, but you know, uh, on both sides, there was stuff that were standing for like decades there.
1: A lot of it has to do with the condition of the pavement. Yeah.
4: Think? Oh, Absolutely.
0: I do think that's, yes, also a big part, like a really (laughs) low tech factor. factor. Right.
4: But Spirit held those records right for so long, right? Wasn't it the 1988 206 something? You know, I don't really remember, but that records, and and we always heard like, and it was a snowy day. Like, you can't even match that. Uh, (laughs) Sort of the undertone of it. Like, listen to what they did, and y'all can't even match. yeah, it's I mean SDC is amazing. You know, I talk about like just executing at a consistently very high level. I I would hire any of them, I feel like. Um, yeah, but it took so long to really shatter those records. And then they just kept doing it.
0: Yeah, it was 20-something years for spirit. And then like Pika had on the women's side a, a record. Okay. or no yeah. sorry that, that was spirit in 95 on the women's side that oh. lasted for like seven or eight years it looks like 2002 was the next time it got broken but you know on the topic has been you know i think the one clear area that is not necessarily fair kind of talking about records and stuff like that is that the women's races are always first and i would hope that's something maybe we can change in the next couple of years because i think a just talking about kind of you know other factors, just having to go early in the day. Nothing is as prime. The course isn't as warm. Interested to to hear feedback. You know, they've talked about potentially trying to stagger both genders. They've talked about just switching every year, who goes first and second. I know there's kind of some trade-offs to both. I don't know if y'all have any input or, or thoughts on those. You know, the crowd's never there as much in the, the early morning. And it's hard to get feedback so,
2: because when, I'm sorry, when I did it, the crowd was always there. Like we didn't have that. Issue. I felt like they were, you know, I was racing first and early and they, it was packed. So, I mean, and I, it's hard to give a, an opinion because I think things sounds like they've changed, you know, a lot since then. I'm sad to
3: say it that never even occurred to me as a problem, but of course mm-hmm. it is. Um, I, I like the idea of staggering having like the deep teams first. And then even within that, alternating the women's deep teams first, in the odd years, and then the um, men's team goes first in even years or something. I, I think that's such a good idea. And then both a teams would go, or all a teams would go later in the day.
4: Yeah, it's it's an interesting. On um, one hand, I can see a counter argument being, well, but then you don't have comparative data because if you know if all the men's heats are typically within one hour span, you can compare the times year to year. But there's so many other variables that change that this seems worth shifting too because there's temperature there's quality of the roads and there's yeah. there's even because of often those two other things which lanes you're even using so there's so many variables that shift anyway why don't we shift you know the order of the heats to be more gender equitable no i think that i think it makes a ton of sense and i would i would love to see it and i know i, I mean my 21 year old self will be annoyed to hear me say this because i know how difficult it was to secure the permits but If the whole thing could get shifted back two hours, I mean, gosh, how amazing that would be. I know that is really, really difficult in the city. I'm sure it's not really amenable to it, but then everything would be warmer. There'd be more folks out. I don't know. I would love to see that happen.
1: I raced in the afternoon because it was the next weekend. And heat was a a factor, I think. Uh, But I think it was later. I don't really remember it was a long time ago but um <laughs> uh there was a lot of like okay is it going to be warmer at 12 I, I know the betas thought it was going to be warmer at 12 and oh. um, we raced later so uh, uh that the later in the day i think it'd be interesting to see the the, the impact on the speeds yeah well
2: oh, and i think there's different goals right for me as a pusher who was just wanting to do my personal best i mean i was I like getting up and getting it done. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I had, you know, so it all depends on your goal, right? Is it to break a record? Is it to win the race? Is it to, you know, have your day done early so you can then have some fun. I don't, you know, I think there's truly really understanding what the end goal is really.
0: Right. No, the, the, that is an interesting consideration is it's like, you still want to be able to do as much of carnival as, as possible. And I know, you know, different roles on the teams or sweepstakes Mm -hmm. prevent that.
3: And there's something that a lot of people don't see, but Jess is familiar with is after the races, the sweepstakes and the head judge, I'll go into a room and decide if anyone was disqualified and, you know, we rewatch tapes and all that. And so you do need that. I remember that taking hours. So you don't Mm -hmm. want to go too late in the day or you won't have time to do that before the award ceremony.
2: Right. So I that, yeah. I think there's a lot of considerations and all that. And, you know, no matter what you do, somebody will be mad. I'll tell you, you know what I
4: mean. Whatever. Yes. <laughs>
0: right. So. Of course.
4: For sure. That's, I mean, that's the whole thing of, I think being a leader in general, but definitely in sweepstakes is like, uh, someone's going to be mad at me at the end of the day. Did I, do I feel like I made a decision, you know, using my integrity and applying the rules as equally as possible, then that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I honestly, I almost, Blanked all that out of my mind. That's right, especially on day two, because then you're looking at tape of like different, like, well, who has the four or five transition camera? Like, what are we gonna, you know? And you try to look back at everything and be as fair as possible. Oh wow, yeah,
3: yeah. Because I think there were people taking notes at like you know all the transitions and different, and so you would review all those notes and say like, we think something flew off this buggy, but we're not sure, and so we'd have to watch the video Yeah. yeah.
0: No, that that's definitely true, and it's something I think CMU TV has made. A lot nicer now that they have like 500 cameras or whatever and it's all done in real time and digital timing that's another place the digital versus analog mm-hmm. of the races is uh, uh really evolved and you know definitely makes my job easier i feel like probably a lot of people's but even so right it's so much happening kind of behind behind the scenes there well, i know you know we've been going at this for a while I'm not sure if there are any i think it was a
1: a question maybe that rachel who was organizing this Mm -hmm. in the email thread just for jessica and melinda and janice like did it change your career did how did it impact your your professional career
2: i mean I, i think the whole carnegie mellon experience impact i don't know i just i i chalk it up to the whole uh culture and experience of that time, you know, so I guess to a certain degree just made me a more thorough and um detailed and analytical uh worker, but that's not just associated with Buggy, it's the kind of the whole Carnegie Mellon experience. But Buggy was a big part of it because, like I said, that to me that was like the first STEM pro you know, it was like STEM a team environment it was on your own you were your own coaches there wasn't some you know what I mean adult adult that you were working under it was a I think a great little um little microcosm of a little company there trying to make something happen
3: yeah I absolutely agree with all of that I think it it did actually change the trajectory of my life in a very roundabout way which I'm happy to bore you all with if you're interested but then just the skills I learned on um, both as Swedish chair and even as a driver watching how you plan out a whole buggy build and you know work backwards from when you want the buggy to roll for the first time and when you have to start, like all of that. I'm now a program manager, so all of that planning definitely you know think about that all the time.
4: I mean, I think I attribute so much to buggy, uh, truly. I think I not in the subject matter has it influenced my job. I, I lead sustainability for a company, but I did it first, and then I got a job in robotics at CMU because of my work as a mechanic on buggy, working with composites. And while I didn't then go into robotics, it was still that sort of skill set I think made me a perhaps more attractive candidate. And absolutely, the leadership experience, a hundred percent, made me par- partially the boss that I am now. Like I, definitely, and again, going back to being comfortable, like. What, what are the ways I'm making decisions? Do I feel like I'm acting with integrity? Then I got to move forward. Um, and I, I think I got that from that experience. I don't know, Sherry, was that your, the case for you? What do you think?
1: Well, so, you know, I was really in that pivotal generation in a way. There were very few women in industrial design mm. throughout my career. So it was just the beginning of being the one female in the department. I went into manufacturing, uh, office furniture manufacturing, and it was steel. So it wasn't, you know, it was kind of heavy duty. Uh, So I was the only female for the first eight years of my career that it just sort of started that, that pattern um, that I didn't really have any control over. (laughs) Um, And it was not the most, it was a challenge to be the only female. You're happy to be at the table in the, in the early eighties. Uh, and not a lot of equality out in the corporate world from my experience. Like, So I have a a small business on this side. I changed careers to be an uh, occupational therapist midlife, but I also do design work too and have a little business on the side. And I was talking with a potential business associate just on um, yesterday. She's a Carnegie Mellon grad, 1976. And, and there's this commonality, like, hey, not only are we from Carnegie Mellon, both Carnegie Mellon, but, oh, and
2: you're a buggy driver. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's that, um, like, social currency in a way,
2: mm-hmm. or connections. And I th- also think it's women dominating something. I mean, even back in the 80s, you know, we were, and you're right, I mean, gender equality isn't where it is today, but I, I still feel like you know, we dominated what we did, you know what I mean? And, and not just in in the outcome of the race or in the outcome of running uphill one, it was just in the confidence and um, kind of standing head and shoulders, toe to toe with, you know, our male team members or, you know, co-workers. So I, I definitely think, I you know, it's obvious to me, we're all strong women and that, you know, no matter how old we are, I mean, that was part of who we are, even back then I think
3: it definitely give me a lot of soft skills um one of which is having some perspective like we were saying how much comes down to this two or three minutes and so even now it's important to know like when does when does that two or three minutes really matter mm-hmm. and when is it just like this is two or three minutes in my life and it might matter now but it won't matter mm-hmm. five years so from now so let's not stress like you know watching like even my kids, how stressed they get about like these
4: little things. It's like this isn't going to matter tomorrow. Come, mm-hmm. come down. You don't always have to cry behind the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly.
1: You don't have to do any more
4: crying in bushes or behind buildings off the course? <laughs> yeah, that's my. That's a solid goal that I set for myself.
0: I mean, I do feel like for me, not, not to necessarily jump in from some of my senior experiences and something I hear though, like, and I think buggy is kind of like this. You'll never i haven't necessarily do something as intensely it's kind of like you know what i got through being yelled at by like 80 parents and like you know ruining the year of however many stc people you know slightly hyperbolic but like you know you spent so many hours in the fringe room or blah, blah 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 it's like we all work hard at our jobs and stuff but like we made it through buggy yeah
2: and, and you accept responsibility i mean you made the comment about the well, whoever you had to disqualify i mean with the fire or whatever it was but i mean i mean that's another lesson it's like my daughter complaining because she got a speeding ticket i'm like well you got caught you know what i mean like if you're gonna break the rule there's a, a you know a consequence so i think um whether it's those little decisions that are made when you're building or you're running or whatever's happening i mean it, it's a a very um, clear consequence that you see as a result. And I think that's a good lesson in life, you know, as you move forward.
4: Yeah, if you're gonna cut corners, decide which mm-hmm. ones are worth it. I think right. <laughs> yes. acknowledge what risks you're taking. And uh, oh, I mean, Will, your, your point is I very much hear it because even when something's tough at work or whatever, now I'm like, did I sleep mm-hmm. close to eight hours last mm-hmm. night? Yeah, I'm good. I've done a lot. Yeah, I've done a lot worse. A lot more and a lot less. (laughs) Yeah, I also have to say
3: this. This is a it's gonna sound so corny. But like, you know, it's not the destination it's the journey. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, like, looking back at my years in buggy, both as a driver and chair, like, I don't actually remember much about about race days my biggest memories of buggy are like hanging out on mornings in the cold and the dark with my friends and talking about buggy and eating donuts and 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 her hanging out in the fringe room after classes like i don't it it thinks like yes we all care so much about the the outcome on race day but what really matters is is
2: mm-hmm. what happens the rest
3: of the year preparing for it
2: yep it's the camaraderie for sure and the yeah. common goal and the working together and that's I think all good stuff.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for asking that, Sherry. Generally, kind of the way I like to close it is slightly more broad than that, but I think we covered a lot of it, but I'll still open up just sort of like what Buggy meant to you or something like that.
1: Since I'm, you know, heading my next birthday ends in a zero. Mm. <laughs> so um, I love I love that it it's kind of a contradiction, especially when you start to head toward the time in your life where again, there's beginning ageism. And I'm like, well, yes, I did. I did drive headfirst down through that park many years ago. Um, and you share that, you know, something every once in a while will come up and like, wow, that just totally changes my impression of you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so um, I love that it's, you know, you lead one life, but it it mm-hmm. sort of feels like that was a, an alternate identity for a short period of time. Yeah, I've absolutely used uh, buggy driving and two
3: truth and lie games before. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I agree with you. I would say my biggest takeaway from buggy, I probably have already said it all, but my friendships that I took away, literally my husband and my whole life (laughs) came out of buggy. And again, the soft skills, the perspective, the leadership, the um, planning and budgeting, I mean, all, all of that. Um it's really important.
4: Yeah, I I agree with all of that. The the soft skills mattered the most coming out of all this, but also the acknowledgement that like I, we saw something, we saw other teams performing really well or like saw something really impossible to do. And we were like, oh yeah, I guess I'm just gonna figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. if someone else did it, I'm just gonna do it a little better. And that approach I, I think has served me relatively well. And I, I hope the people still doing buggy right now can like it's so hard to zoom out for a second and be kind to yourself and acknowledge what you've done, but igno- like noting what you learn on no sleep outside of already really difficult classes in the middle of the night is pretty astounding. And I think that that ability will translate to a number of
2: things. And I would end with that. I mean, I, everything you guys have said is spot on and um, I don't think I can add much more, but um, I agree with it all.
3: Yeah, just one of the coolest things about Buggy is, I mean, it's been going on now for what, a hundred years, and, but most people are only there for four of those years, if that, and just watching how it's just kept going all this time with these, you know, everyone has such a small piece of it, and when they're in it, it feels like so all-encompassing, and you look back, and you had such a small piece of this huge overall history of Buggy, just, I always think that's so amazing. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you so much to my four guests for joining this weekend, and thank you for joining in, as always, helping make this podcast what it is. Uh, Do you have reactions, thoughts, favorite parts of this episode? Let us know in the CMU Buggy Discord. Uh, If you're not there already, uh, just go to cmubuggy.org, and you should be able to figure out there. I hope. If not, you can email someone and they'll tell you what to do. Uh, in any case, like I said, thank you so much. We are on a roll now. There will be a new episode next Wednesday. I can't tell you what it's about at this point, uh, but we got lots of exciting stuff coming up. This week I'm interviewing uh, the current sweepstakes chairs to talk about what it was like dealing with COVID and everything this year. Um talking to flaggers about the art of flagging and much, much more. So keep on staying tuned, subscribe, whatever. Uh, Once more, got to say thank you to the Buggy Alumni Association for making this possible, especially Rachel Schmidt, uh, who does a lot, a lot, a lot of the behind the scenes work to make this possible. Uh, So everybody thank her uh, for making this episode go and all the other episodes And uh, we'll talk to you next Wednesday here on Shoot the Shit. So enjoy your weeks and stay tuned for next time.